everybody, and welcome to Mind the Gap, a podcast seeking sales and marketing alignment by Enablix. My name is Nick Zeke Lopez, and today I'm joined by with Emil Mladenov. Emil, how's it going today? Great, Nick. How are you doing? I, I am well. Um, and that, thank you very much for coming on, on the show. Now, Emil, you are you you are a household name to many. Everybody knows who Emil is, but for those that don't, uh, for the listeners that don't know, uh, could you introduce yourself and and, and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am a vice president of marketing at the company called Inspirata, and I'm part of the executive team at that company. Um, I'm mostly focused on marketing, but I also oversee some areas of sales and uh, market research and kind of get involved in some of the operational stuff that's happening at the company. It's a fairly small uh, company, so we, we all wear multiple hats. Yeah, yeah, and, and and in talking to you, you know, getting ready for the episode, I was I was interested in, in a little bit of your background of like like you said, you have marketing, but you also have some like operational, uh, some soft skills, some hard skills. Can you, can you take me? Can you start off with telling me a little bit about how you how you arrived to the world of marketing and and what you did before then? Yeah, so when it comes to uh, having a career and my my career choices. Um, I realized that some of the, the pivots that I've made are um, a little bit unorthodox compared to some other marketers who may have gone in a more linear um, tra trajectory, uh, starting from more junior marketing positions and then going in uh, to hire more senior positions or maybe alternating between sales and marketing. Um, but, you know, I've, 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 I've actually dabbled into several different areas, like you said. And while I made a few bold changes over the years, I'm, I'm proud to say that whatever I have learned in terms of software hard skills, it's definitely helped me um, build up on on who I am and 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 become even better in what I'm doing. So even though some of these things may not 100% relate to marketing, uh, there is always a time when I can look back on what I've done in the past and say, well, if I didn't do that, I would have been making a mistake right now, or I wouldn't know what to do right now. And that's, that's, that's important. So, you know, the, just to kind of give you a, a, an overview, um, for example, an area where I really started honing my analytical skills and knowing how to use data, dealing with numbers. I, I studied finance in college. I've always been also interested in math. And I wanted to be an investment banker back in the day, and that was years ago. So some of the iBanker uh, companies don't even exist anymore. Uh, but you know, after I did a few job interviews with the usual suspects on Wall Street, I kind of realized that finance is still interesting to me as a subject, and I like a lot of aspects of it. But it's a little too literal for me. And what I mean by this is that you know, it's a numbers. It's numbers, and um, there you try not to have a lot of unknowns, and you try not to be surprised many times when you're in finance. And I I like ambiguity. I like to tackle problems that I've never encountered in the past. I I like to um, kind of use both my left and right side of my brains, and you know to be able to be analytical, but at the same time super creative when it's needed. And I just realized that that's probably not what I'll be doing in iBanking, at least in the beginning for, for many, many years until not many, maybe many large, to... like white space problems yet to, yet to be solved in, in iBanking. Yeah, right. Maybe at one point, if I lead the team and we are working on a huge merger and acquisition deal, maybe there's going to be more creativity there, but not in the beginning. So I just got the solution with that. I retained my love of finance and numbers, but just decided to, uh, to kind of explore something else. So, um, around that time, I was applying for new, you know, for jobs, basically my first job straight out of college. And I took a bold step in the unknown and decided to go into consulting. Um, and I, and that in retrospect, built up my strategic, uh, skills, uh, the ability to see the big picture, to connect the dots. And what I did was I joined an up and coming research and consulting company, um, that was not one of the big five in terms of you know reputation and uh brand awareness but it was actually growing very fast and later on even more exponentially than when i uh when i joined them 
And in retrospect, that allowed me to grow professionally um, as the company was growing. So I, I kind of had a very fast, accelerated growth in positions and uh, areas of seniority. And that helped me not only to hone my strategic thinking and the ability to kind of borrow ideas from one industry to another, which is important because a lot of times if you're just in one function, you kind of think about it's a little bit of tunnel vision. You only think about your function and how things get done in whatever you're doing, whether it's marketing or whatever. And you also fall in the trap of we are in a unique industry and you know whatever happens somewhere else doesn't apply to us too much. And I've learned through consulting and through that job particularly to not fall in the trap, to actually always look for ideas elsewhere and figure out how they apply to what I'm doing at the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that, so I learned these things, but the other thing that I learned through this growth that I mentioned that the company was doing professionally, I was growing with that. I learned how to be a manager and how to be an agent of change because the company was growing and it had needs that were changing. And I had to be part of that and, and be the agent of change many times. And at one point I merged four teams into one larger function and I was managing 20, 25 people. And some of them were in the U S and. Uh, a big number of them were also in India, and I, I believe I also had someone in the UK. So that was, you know, that was my first uh, experience becoming um, kind of a leader and, and, and learning how to work with people and how to manage people. Um, and then I decided that it's great to be a consultant, but it's a little um, too abstract. It's theoretical. Mm -hmm. I mean, you work with real companies, you work on real problems, but you're never on the hook of, you know, you're never on the hook for what happens. You never actually really know what really happens at the end. You just provide your insights. You try to uh, influence things on the outside here and there, but it's not your, it's not your project. It's not uh, your company. So I decided to become more embedded in the real world to be part of the practical problems that people are trying to solve. So I moved on to corporate and I became a head of strategy at Rosetta Stone, the language learning company. And at that time, Rosetta Stone was the hottest educational technology company on the market. They've recently uh, IPO'd successfully. They had a very ambitious plan for growth internationally and domestically. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot there and some of the things that really stand up when I think about my learning experiences from there. One, I realized the power of having a strong brand and not only brand awareness, but a brand equity, like having such a strong household brand that people would intrinsically pay attention to what you're saying just because they know who you're coming from. Uh, yeah. And that's a luxury that later on when I started working in some other smaller companies I didn't have, but it's just important to understand that it's important how, uh, how that can help a lot. Um, the other thing that I learned is the nuance between B2B and B2C because the company was extremely strong on the B2C side, but also had a pretty viable B2B offering. And that offering was growing throughout the years, becoming a bigger percentage of the total. So I, I kind of, started understanding um, how the, thing, the two things work. But most mm -hmm. importantly, and I think that's actually helping me a lot now, um, I don't shy away from borrowing a lot of ideas from B2C that other B2B marketers may say, these are not, these are consumer world things, right? We're not going to do yeah. that, not in our industry. And, uh, and I think Can this helps. An and especially, well, uh, so, one example would be uh, creating more um, uh, interactive experiences for the end user, if you will, to kind of showcase uh, partially what your product does. Um, you know, a lot of times when you do marketing um, for the B2B space, uh, you probably are focused on what are the several personas that I need to target uh, because these are going to be involved in the decision-making process. and you know, what are the types of things that they'll like to hear on the enterprise level. Uh, but at the end of the day, you also have to uh, build a little bit of uh, demand from the bottom up, right? Like basically the users themselves have to have a need and realize that they have a need and, and use that product in one way or another. Um, so from a B2C, on the B2C world, that's number one. I mean, like you have to yeah. provide the experience to the people who are going to be using the product because they're also the decision makers. In the B2B world, the, the decision makers are not always the users. So there's a little bit of breakdown between the two. 
So that's one area. Another area, for example, is that at least in my industry, uh, where I am right now, the healthcare technology, um, you know, digital ads and, uh, you know, even advertising on Facebook and things like that were not really very common in the mm -hmm. past. And for many reasons, based on where the industry is going right now, not so much the industry itself, but just how Facebook is changing and other things are changing, uh, we are, you know, maybe moving away a little bit from that again. But there yeah. were several years where we were doing a lot of digital ads in my company and some of our competitors were not doing any. Uh, and and that made us stand up and stand out. And when we were, for example, targeting, uh, we, we had one app that we had to target doctors. And there it was very important to reach out to them individually on the individual basis. That That helped a lot. But if you retain your B2B mentality, because until yesterday you were sending enterprise solutions and you're targeting CIOs and CMOs and whatever, and then all of a sudden they tell you, well, now you need to target doctors, you're probably going to go with your yeah. old approach, the B2B approach. And you're going to go with, uh, I'm going to target these people where they are at their homes on their Roku's or, you know, with ads on their Roku's, I'm going to target them uh, on Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and everywhere else that go on yeah. social media. So, is it fair to say your biggest piece of advice is to come up with a TikTok dance for whatever product you're 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 selling? <laughs> <laughs> well, know your audience. If you think that that's going to work for them, I, I think by all means you can do that, and and also know your limitations in terms of what you can create on TikTok. Yeah, right? well, and and <laughs> flexibility too, because you can really hurt yourself if yeah. if you try to step outside yeah. of your comfort zone. <laughs> so let's right. fast I mean, you, you don't want to get injured on the spot, right? <laughs> yeah, no, unless it's very funny. Some people like that, but uh, we're going to move on. I'm not I'm not suggesting violence. Uh, so you're at Inspirata now. Could you tell me a little bit about what you do there um, and what Inspirata does? Yeah, so Inspirata is a healthcare technology company, and it's a leader in oncology informatics. And what it means is that um, it's a pretty highly specialized uh, field where uh, we use some of the latest technologies that are almost buzzwords these days, intellect, you know, natural language processing, artificial intellect, AI, image analysis, overall just digital transformation in any uh, process. And we try to uh, make it easier for hospitals and healthcare organizations to process the gigabytes and petabytes of data that they have on cancer patients. Uh, because a lot of times that data is unstructured. It may be captured as images like radiology images or pathology images. And uh, in other cases, it's captured as a narrative. It's free text. Someone saw you, uh, let's say a doctor saw you as a patient, and they wrote a little narrative about uh, the encounter, what happened, you know, what you, talk, what you told them, what they talked to you about. But it always in free text. Um, there is a report. The pathologist sees your image and then they write a report about you and they say, uh, we believe we see cancer and that cancer is whatever. Um, and that, again, is described in human language. Uh, so it's very hard um, for any entity out there to access all this data and be able to manipulate it in ways that they can make something useful out of it to inform their own decisions and to speed up the processes that they work, they're working on. Um, so maybe the easiest way to describe this to an, to an outsider is to think about clinical trials. So there are thousands of clinical trials out there. They're running, some of them are running, others are ready to launch very soon. And there, a lot of them are happening in the US, others are happening in other places of the world, all over the world. And each trial has specific inclusion and exclusion criteria. And in order for you to qualify, you need to meet this criteria as a patient. Um, so what happens is that when you see your doctor or you know, later on, uh, you have someone in the organization, uh, an oncologist or a nurse, who's looking at all these trials potentially and looking at your profile, all the data they have about you, and trying to figure out which, patient, uh, which patients fit specific trials Mm -hmm. or the other way around, which trials are best for a patient. And it's almost impossible uh, to do this in a short period of time. And the, the downside is if you take too long, 
then uh, yeah. you know it's too late. Like uh, right. you as a cancer patient have started taking under some some treatment, and then you're eligible for that trial anymore. And right. what this means is that maybe you missed out on the opportunity to improve your quality of life, to get better outcomes, to maybe even survive where normally you wouldn't have survived. And on the other hand, that just makes clinical trials super long and expensive, and you know it, it just adds a lot of uncertainty to the process. So what we do is we just we have a proven NLP solution, natural language, uh, uh, natural language processing solution. We've refined it over many years, working with hundreds of hospitals, and it's optimized for clinical use. And basically, we apply that, and we solve the problem. And that's what Inspirata is in, in essence. It's inspired data, um, and basically, we we try to make every moment matter to our uh, you know to the clinicians that work with us and the cancers that they see and. I know this sounds a little bit of a marketing spiel right now, but I can't help it. You know, I'm a marketer, so I had to provide some <laughs> well, of that, uh, the taglines uh, and a few brand plugs here. But that's what we do. Now, you ask me what I do at Inspirata, and I'll try to be shorter in my description there because it's more easier. For people Insp- inspired marketing. That's that inspired data. Inspired marketing, inspired marketing. Yeah, inspired <laughs> marketing data. <laughs> uh, so uh, I I had all aspects of marketing within the company, and we have operations that go beyond the U.S. So internationally and and lo- and domestically, and I also am very much involved in a lot of the sales processes. And uh, recently, I built a, a team of sales development reps, SDRs, um, and. I manage the team as well. I have a manager who manages them on a day-to-day basis, but I'm responsible as the executive sponsor of that um, to you know make sure that they're successful and um, they're performing. Uh, and I, I also drive a lot of the market research at the company, and that's based on my previous experiences. Where you know in in the past I was a consultant, and then I worked in strategy and learned market research at Rosetta Stone. So. A lot of these things, again, going back to what I said earlier on, they're kind of coming in to be handy when the right time uh, arises. Right. But you know, whatever I learned in the past doing jobs that are not necessarily marketing is definitely helping a lot now uh, when I'm a marketer. So that's what I do. I hope that makes sense. Uh, I mean, do you want me to elaborate on any of these or? No, I kind of. I, what I want to want to go next is what you just said. So, so you you lead all marketing related at, you know activities. But, you know, this being mind the gap, I, I want to focus specifically on that sales part. You'd said you'd hired a, a team of SDRs. More of, I want to mm-hmm. back out and say, what do you think? Can we talk a little bit about marketing's role in revenue? What do you see marketing should be doing? Um, and, and and how does marketing execute on that to to, to shorten the gap between sales and, and marketing? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So in any effective organization i think marketing should play three main roles and one is the the one that probably everyone thinks of and that's presenting a professional unified front to the public basically brands public relations trade shows marketing collateral positioning your company all the messaging you need to create digital campaigns landing pages i think for many people that's I, i think when many people especially outside the profession think of marketing that's just all they think it is. It's like, oh, that's what marketing's doing. Yeah. You just kind of, you know, you're making the website or whatever that is. And it's important. I mean, it's table stakes. If you're not doing this effectively, then you have a lot of work in front of you. You need to uh, make sure that your core marketing engine is capable of covering all these areas. And I say that because I see also some folks that are more used to the, and again, that, that probably depends from industry to another industry and B2B versus B2C, but uh, in certain industries and B2B spaces, um, there's probably more emphasis on traditional marketing and press releases, trade shows, and website. It's probably where it all ends, right? Some messaging mm-hmm. here and there, uh, but in in the modern world of marketing, you can't just be doing one or two of these aspects. You have to be doing everything. You have to be strategic enough to craft the messaging and positioning. You have to be tactical to execute on the campaigns. You have to understand technology so you can create effective digital experiences. You have to be a psychologist to understand what works, what doesn't work, how how your target audiences will react to what you're showing them. And you need to understand data. Going back to, again, what I mentioned earlier, I love data. um, And it's important. I mean, don't get bogged down and just focus on the data. But it's good to analyze trends 
spot some issues, even just minor things that can help you improve your day-to-day -day performance. So um, I think that's one role that everyone should always keep in mind. I mean, like you said, everyone thinks about it. Uh, maybe don't think about it as holistically as I described it here, but it's definitely the number one role. Now, right. pure marketing with a capital M is what they call this first role, right? Like it's just, mm -hmm. just doing marketing. I think this is becoming a thing of the past. Um, I think in most modern organizations uh, and especially those that are either with very limited resources because they're still more nascent, maybe startups or uh, latter stage startups have ambitious growth targets, but not a lot of uh, runway to experiment. It's very neat, you know, it's very important to prove your ROI. And it's one of the biggest challenges in marketing, how to prove ROI, especially if you only focus on the marketing with capital M, which is what I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. I mean, just having all these landing pages and press releases and trade shows on their own, it's probably not gonna be something that you can convincingly quantify for your executives. What they want to hear from you is how much revenue was generated from the mm -hmm. activity that was done. So you need to be an integral part of the lead generation process. And what it means is not only create some inbound leads here and there, mm -hmm. uh, but to actually consistently, you know, focus on creating inbound, outbound. But, you know, once you get these leads, help them qualify and figure out which ones are the good ones and then assign those to a sales team so they can work on them as opportunities. And yeah. You know, that's 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 where I think a lot of times there's a little bit of disconnect uh, because people think about, yeah, I'm doing these things. You know, I have, again, trade shows. I have all these landing pages. I ran some email blasts, campaigns, digital ads. So I have some inbound leads. Well, yeah, but how many of these really ended up in the pipeline? How many of these are, project, you know, progressing in the pipeline from one stage to another? Mm -hmm. How many of them the sales reps are really excited to talk about? Um, that's important to keep in mind. Uh, so this is why... You see more and more companies where SDR, the SDR team, like you mentioned earlier, um, those are hosted under the head of marketing. Right. Um, and and this is definitely why we've gone with this structure at Inspirata. We definitely considered where these folks should be, and we thought it, it makes sense to, for them to be an extension of the marketing team. Yeah. And, and I think now, it's funny. There is a third role, but I don't know if you want to comment on this first. Oh, yeah, no, I, I absolutely do. So because in the way that you described that last part, I think it's it's very much in line with, I think, of the, of the, the few of the recent guests that we've had. Uh, but I think that first part of saying, well, the first thing you're doing is pre presenting a, a unified front. The second thing you're doing is creating leads. I, I think many, you know, we, we just had um, Jason Myers on uh, from the Austin Lawrence Group. And, and his whole thing was, you know, forget about lead gen. Like, like, don't do it. Don't try to generate leads. If you do the first part effectively... You, you'll generate leads. Um, so, so his whole thing is don't count the leads generated. Don't like, like don't, uh, uh, not his whole thing, his whole, uh, him and, and, and a couple others talking about buyer centric revenue. If you, if you don't focus on leads, but you do focus on demand, which I think you're counting as one and two, like, like generate demand for your product. Then in the end, revenue will go up and you're right. The attribution is probably going to be fuzzy. But is attribution already kind of fuzzy because marketing is is taking credit like credit for a download of someone that would have, was already in the sales process? Yeah. Um, do you well, have thoughts on on demand gen versus lead gen and and how that shakes out in the like you said capital M marketing versus not? So I think the big difference is whether how 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 close your um, sales process is to a real B two C environment. And there are B2B environments that are closer to B2C. Uh, and what I mean by this is that you may be targeting um, someone who is the sole decision maker, and that person may be able to make decisions almost immediately. Uh, and in that case, that sales process is fairly short and maybe a B2B sale, but it's for a you know, small amount of money, not a lot of risk for the person who's buying it. Uh, not a lot of checks and balances that they need to take care of on their end. Yeah. That's, you know, in that case, yes. I mean, just doing your capital M marketing can actually ensure enough demand. And that demand translates fairly easily. After that, you just have this funnel, right? And you know that they're going and trickling down and trickling down. Now, things get very fuzzy when you have a 
long and convoluted sales process that goes over nine to 12 months. It involves six to seven um, decision makers, stakeholders. Uh, some of them are decision makers, others are influencers, some of them even detractors that you have to make sure that you're keeping happy, but they're not really detracting um, from your product. And you, you're depending on so many uh, touches uh, during that uh, period. Uh, you know, you're generating a lead, but for that lead to become a sale, there are months and months and months of interactions and conversations and sell, sales can do a lot in that process to either make it happen or not make it happen. Mm -hmm. So I would say that if I just relied on capital M marketing, unless I work for a company that was so uh, financially stable and um, kind of like established that for them, hey, you know, just we're just going to spend yeah, infinite a certain runway. amount of money, money on marketing. Matter. Right. Yeah. Or no, it matters. But, hey, we've decided that we're going to spend this chunk of money on marketing and we don't need to know how much exactly that relates to what happens at the end of the day. You know, in that case, yes, absolutely. Um, but most of the companies, especially when they start going into these different technology spaces, and especially in the healthcare technology space, they're not in that position. Mm -hmm. um, and again, uh, I just have a perfect example. Several years ago, different company uh, that I work right now, but I was at a trade show and we uh, we had a we we had a customer uh, at the booth. And he was talking to a sales rep and things were progressing very quickly because that is probably probably was the fifth or the sixth conversation they've been having. And there was just a matter of let's shake hands, uh, get to meet each other a little bit more and then figure out what else needs to be done on your end, just procedurally, like operationally, right. who else needs to you know, check the boxes for this to happen. And then all of a sudden, uh, our you know someone who's very senior within our organization uh, interjects in the conversation without any understanding of where this conversation is going and even understanding the, the 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 customer and they just come in and they start talking about some stuff that doesn't really relate to what the conversation was before that and then impact the conversation so much that we probably lost another five or six months before closing the deal because they just instilled all this doubts in the end customer right and and then basically well the reaction was oh well that's great so how about you guys come and visit us again in in a month from now and i'll bring in a few more stakeholders of mine and then maybe we'll do another review and all of a sudden you start <laughs> going down that path right so the, the reason why i'm sharing this is that you know as a marketer you have very limited uh control of you know what happens on you know behind you know behind the the screen uh, in terms of the sales process but you have to be aware of that and you have to support it to make sure these things don't happen you have to enforce it in a way i mean like you have to be the traffic controller that sometimes stops people from making these mistakes and and keeping people real um and and that's part of the lead generation process for me and that's part of the roi that i can prove at the end uh but again going back to the something earlier that i said it's just qualifying the lead I mean, in, 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 in some spaces, a lead is a lead. They come in and you have some numbers and maybe out of the 10 people that came in this uh, today, uh, three of them are going to uh, sign up for a free trial and one is going to convert. And you know that this is going to keep going that way. But, you know, again, in, a, in an industry where we have different stakeholders and things are happening kind of in a more convoluted way, and it's a more difficult uh, process of even proving the ROI of your solutions to the end customer, you have to qualify these people. I mean, you have to make sure they're the right person, that they're not just um, wasting your time as a lead, uh, mm -hmm. that they have the interest, they have the budget, they have the needs, they have the authority, uh, right? So all these things have to happen on the marketing side. I think it's a huge mistake to just pass on the lead to the salesperson and say, deal with it i mean i've done it in the past i've fallen in this trap and 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 most of the times it doesn't work and and that's where it's really hard for you to prove your roi well and so so that's where and i want to jump really quickly to another another topic so so when you say lead you know i, I think we talk a lot about mqls on you know just just in the industry you're, you're saying that that mqls are like if we talk about a lead from marketing to sales what is that mm -hmm. for you? And, and you see that as an, as an integral part of what marketing does. 
Yeah, so I mean, I I don't like to always uh, use the the buzzwords that everyone else uses, but you know, like let's mm-hmm. say you have MQO and then you have SAO and SQL, right? The marketing sure. qualified leads, <clears throat> sales accepted leads, sales qualified leads, and the way I define them, and maybe that's different from the way other people define it, uh, but that's the way I've explained it to everyone else in my organization. So at least we're all on the same page. So the marketing qualified lead will come in and that's typically someone who's raised their hand and have said in one way or another that they have some sort of an interest in what your company is offering and maybe even uh, defined in what area they're interested in. And uh, they come in, they're inbound or you know, even maybe we were at a trade show and we intercepted several people on the floor and they kind of said, you know what? It's interesting, let's have another call and talk about it. Give me your mm-hmm. contact information or here's my um, cards, give me a call later. So this is all great. Uh, and I think that's where I think in most cases, a lot of marketers just say, all right, this is where we end. And and then the rest is, you know, their metrics that we target, and but we, we, we don't influence them that much. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I'm just saying that I've seen both sides of the coin. And the next one is, in my mind, sales accepted lead. So I would define this as someone who's actually really accepted that at least they're going to commit the time to speak with us in a more formal setting. They're going to have a conversation with maybe one of our sales reps, maybe a subject matter expert, maybe one of our senior executives to learn more about the product, maybe have a demo to to, to start the discovery process uh, and start the real sales conversation. And and unless you have an extremely proactive sales team, which may happen, but most of the times they're just too busy with their deals, closing those deals. That's where they don't necessarily always go in and and react to these MQLs to make sure this meeting happens on time. And by the time they may reach out to someone, maybe that person is not hot anymore about your topic, right? They've moved on. Um, they found another right. solution or they just lost interest. They forgot that they've been to your website. That happens so many times. You call them like Inspirato. Uh, sorry, I've never been to your website, even though maybe they downloaded five. <laughs> like, how did we get your number? Then? Papers. Yeah. Yeah. I, hey, I got your phone number and email address because you downloaded the, a few of my infographics. Yes. But no, you don't remember that you've been there. So that happens. So, okay. So the SAL is the next one. And then for me, an SQL, sales qualified lead, is when at the end, you uh, come out of the initial meeting and you look at the sales rep and and that person tells you, you know what, there's definitely, there are enough follow-up steps here that are urgent enough. They're going to happen within our time frame for me to consider this a viable sales opportunity. I'm going to uh, create a sales opportunity in our CRM and I'm going to start working on that in stage one or whatever you want to call it. But I'll mm-hmm. be actively working on that. There'll be follow-up steps. We'll be meeting with more stakeholders, uh, I'll be sending additional materials, maybe we'll start talking about pricing, whatever it is, right? So, um, you know, these are these are the leads that I define. And I believe that unless you play that second role that I mentioned, and you only focus on the marketing side, the capital M side, it, it's, it's got to be very hard to progress people from MQL to SAL to SQL. And mm-hmm. you can define them in a way that it's easy for you to show numbers that you're progressing them. But to have the sales reps at the end really vouch for you right. and say, you know what, all these leads that came in and Emil is claiming to be SQLs, they are. <laughs> you know, they are. Yeah, well, I, I think I'm happy about them. I'm doing something about At some point in the last, you know, five, 10 years of like, yeah, we had 100 MQLs and not a single sales process that resulted from them because they were 100, right? Like you said. I, I want to touch on something you, you said, though, uh, because you had said, hey, you know, you contact people that had downloaded some infographic or something. Uh, quick thoughts on gated versus ungated content. Uh, I think it's a topic that that keeps coming up. I think the marketing world is, uh, I don't know if people can make up their minds right now. Yeah, it's a tough question. Man. I think it's tough because uh, there are many ways to look at it. And in a way, it's one of these things where no matter what answer you give, uh, it could be right or wrong at any point of time. And um, I personally believe that we're way past the time where our prospects, no matter what industry they are in, are willingly going to provide their contact information just to download the basic piece of content, especially some content that they'll perceive to be freely available elsewhere. 
um, you know, a lot of these infographics and just very high level uh, white papers may fall in that category. And mm -hmm. um, I, I think that those, you know, it's 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 kind of it's important not to fall in the trap and basically gate everything because you know you're gonna alienate your people, the people you're going after. They're they're, they're smart enough; they know by now that they shouldn't be providing their contact information for everything out there. Uh, and they don't need to because they can find that information elsewhere. But on the other hand, um, as I said, as I said earlier, marketing has to be a, a core player in the lead generation process. And how do you generate leads? You have to generate them, right? I mean, you have to get these contact informations, and uh, you know, uh, you have to get people to opt in into uh, giving you permission to reach out to them after that and talk to them. So um, you have to gate some of the content and. There is another component that's very important, especially in the B2B world, where sometimes the competition is very fierce. And um, what really makes or breaks your success as a company is one or two pieces of functionality that you've found the cow exactly to do that no one else is doing and your uh, your competitors are falling behind. And if you expose too much without a gate, if you allow everyone to go into all your webinars and fireside chats and things like that, and download all your brochures, then you know they will find stuff that they shouldn't be seeing that easily, at least. Um, so that's a, you know it's important, and it's not just competitors. You have consultants out there. That why would you educate a consultant that they're gonna get a gig after that consulting a hospital about something by educating them on the whatever process you're uh, streamlining with your product and solution? Um, mm -hmm. We call these people tire kickers, and some of them could be also students, right? They're just going in and searching for content. But again, I mean, uh, I don't want everyone to see my content just because they're interested in clicking and downloading it. So what should I do? I mean, damned if you're getting it and damned if you're not getting the content, right? So yeah. um, I think that in a way, at least one thing that helps me navigate through this is um, a piece of methodology that I, I learned uh, first by working with uh, some folks that wrote a book um, about 10 years ago, and I worked at this consulting company that I mentioned when I decided to um, have my first job out of college in, in consulting rather than eye banking. But they wrote a book called The Challenger Sale, and that book is available on Amazon. So if anyone hasn't read it, you can guys find it. I'm not necessarily promoting it, but I think it's an interesting book to, it provides an interesting perspective. And it's also a methodology that's been successfully used by a lot of companies of different sizes and you know some really large, Fortune 500 companies are, are very adamant about it, and some really small startups are doing it. But what I, you know, what I've learned through that is that um, there are some certain elements that, even though Challenger, the methodology itself, relates mostly to sales, there's also a marketing component to it, um, and it's a little hidden. Uh, but when you speak to people that are doing it, more or less, you start uh, getting the gist of it. And if you were to come out of this podcast with two things to remember. I would say here are the two things that the most memorable moments that I'd like to emphasize. The number one thing is you should always make your content to provide commercial insights that challenge your customer's thinking and lead to your solution. And, and, and what's very important, I want to emphasize on the last part, lead to your solution, not lead with your solution. So bring people to understand that they have a problem, they have challenged them, to understand they have a problem and then they ask for a solution and you lead them to your solution versus start immediately with, I have a, a, a toolbox here of algorithms that I want to showcase to you and you can figure out how to use that in your particular case, uh, right? Which will be to lead with the solution rather than to lead to right. the solution. So you have to offer and commercial insights, the way they're defined are unique and valuable and provable and they are worthwhile for the customer to listen to you and get back to you when they need help after that to lead back to your solution so that's the number one thing to remember and, and then the second thing to remember is that you should organize your content around three main buckets and in the challenger speak those are called spark inform and confront and the sparks are very quick pieces that will grab customers attention like little ads little infographics, uh, interactive things on the website. 
um, they should not be gated. They should be just the ones that are driving the traffic, informing people enough about what you want to talk to them about so they're interested in paying more attention to you. But, you know, they're not justified to be behind the gates. Like, no one is just going to realistically provide you with their contact information to, to see that. No one is going to give them give you your, your their contact email or email address or phone number so they can watch your video, uh, 60 second video or whatever it is, right? So uh, again, don't gate those. But then the inform and the confront pieces are longer form. They have much more substance. And they're very insightful, and those are the pieces that you should gate. And and people will understand that they're gated because there is a reason for that. They they provide a lot of value. And they're also uh, sometimes uh, unique. Well, you can't get them from anywhere else, but they also are personalized to you in one way or another, maybe. So that's why they're, they need your name and they need your contact information. So inform does what the name suggests. It informs you, right? Confront provides some unconventional truth about your current state. So it internalizes the pain of you, of sticking with the status quo, of not making a change, of dealing with your uh, you know, problems, pain points over and over and over. Um, so it makes you want to look for new solutions. It, it'll, and eventually it will bring you to us for those solutions. Yeah. Um, so lead, lead, that that's, lead to and not with. Yeah. I, I, I really like that. And so, you know, kind of skipping ahead a little bit. It sounds like just, just listening to you, if you look at Spark Inform and Confront, you kind of have your gating strategy there. Yeah, I mean, at least that's one framework you can apply to deciding what to gate and not gate. Again, I mean, there must there may be sometimes exceptions to it because there are other considerations. And one of these considerations may be, like I said earlier, there is some very sensitive competitive information in your even in your Spark that you may not want someone to see. Just to give you an example, right? There was a small video, 60 second overview of our, like a little explainer video about our product. If it somehow zooms on certain features and sometimes even just the way you organize the workflow within your product is where you are better than your competitors. And when you go and meet your clients, you say, well, you know what? These guys are, their product is research first only, right? It's meant for researchers yeah. and our product is clinician first. And our workflow is really organized in a way that helps you as a doctor do whatever you're doing. Allowing the competition to see that firsthand because they don't they can't just download a product unlike B2C, right? Where they can go and download your app or right, you know, right. access your uh, you know, sign up for it and access it. In, in the B2B world, it's much harder to do that. You have to pay a lot of money for competitive Intel. So, you know, you have to be careful. So yeah, it's a great framework. But again, don't use it religiously and forget about everything else. I mean, there's <laughs> other considerations that, like everything else, there's always an exception to the rule, I guess. Right. Uh, okay. So as we start to wrap up here, I do want to ask you, it's a question that we ask um, almost everybody, but, but how, you know, it gets to how do you, how do you not widen the gap? How do you shorten the gap? Where do, where, so where are you places that you see the alignment between sales and marketing breakdown and <laughs> And, and what should marketers and sales and element and product marketers, what, what should we be doing about it? Well, I think the most obvious area where sales and marketing kind of break down is just the the, the sheer expectation that uh, you've provided some content or even information about, even in the CRM, right? The contact information about someone and that sales is going to fully take advantage of it and use it in exactly a prescribed way that you've asked them to use it. And in reality, what happens is that if you're a successful salesperson, you've honed your ability to focus only on activities that have the highest probability of closing a deal and bringing revenue, because at the end, that means more commission to you, right? Yeah. And by default, by definition, that's what you should be doing as a salesperson. Unfortunately, what this means is that you also probably don't have the time or the patience to look for collateral content and deal with mm -hmm. number of clicks here and there and then figure out where's the latest version of whatever deck they need to share. You're just probably going to open that PowerPoint that you saved six months ago on your computer uh, <laughs> and just reuse that and not even care that the brand has changed since then. Or maybe we're talking about this product in a different way now. We call it something else, even whatever. 
So that has a lot of risks there because marketing will point fingers at sales, sales will point fingers at marketing, and they'll say, we don't have the time. You're asking me to do stuff that I shouldn't be doing. So, you know, that's the basic challenge. And I think that is being addressed very effectively. And, you know, like, I'm, I'm sorry for another plug here, but you guys, when I mean you, Enablix as a company, <laughs> is offering a good product uh, in that in that regard. And that's solving some of that, you know, it's you know closing some of that gap. So, uh, you know, that's one. But another area that creates friction between sales and marketing relates back to what we talked about, the lead generation. Um, and again, I mean, I kind of talked about it a little bit, but, you know, successful reps will focus on latter stage deals because they have the highest probability to close. And again, this is what their CEO or their head of marketing will be asking. I mean, are you closing deals this week, this month, this quarter? Why are you spending time on things that have low probability of closing? So it's a big dilemma for them because on one hand, they need to start building that pipeline and bringing some of these other, you know, the leads that come in, uh, you know, moving them to stage one, stage two, and, you know, continue to progress them at the same time what they're being asked by all the senior people in the company is focus on the later, you know, the latter one, right? Like the ones that are in the latest stages because they're the ones that are going to bring the money now. So by the time they find the time to look into the leads that you generate to them as marketer or marketing department, by the time they have the spare moments, the the leads may no longer be hot. They, like we talked about earlier, right? They've moved on, they've forgotten, they've been to Inspirata. And then what happens? The the salesperson comes back to you and says, well, thank you very much, but this was a really not high quality lead, not qualified. Sorry, but you know, don't send me those types of leads anymore in the future. And the more it happens, the less trust there is between the two teams. And then marketing starts complaining and saying, well, let me, let me look at this. Well, it's taking you three weeks to follow up with that person. No wonder by that time they've moved on. And then they say, well, you know, you just didn't send me the right person. It wasn't, I didn't, it wasn't convincing enough that I should be going in that uh, direction. That I should be following up on this person faster. So I think that there is a gap there. And I keep mentioning the SDR team. And I think that's the what I call the bridge between marketing and sales. Um, you know, without, without that team, especially if it's a team that's eager to qualify, eager to go after every single lead you give them, hungry for success um, and then led by a competent SDR manager who manages to, you know, focus on the right things and at the same time ensure that there's enough um, collaboration between them and marketing on one end and collaboration between them and sales on the other end. If you don't have something like that, you're going to suffer. And I've been in positions where I may be doing some of the greatest marketing campaigns I could think of out there and I see results from those. But those results end at the MQL stage <laughs> or maybe some <laughs> end at the SAL stage. And then after that, there's a huge gap. And right. at the end of the year, when you say, hey, Mr. CEO, I'm so proud of what I did. And, and he turns around to you and says, well, that's so great. I see that you've done a lot. But how many deals closed that come from you? Uh, because mm-hmm. that's what matters to me. Not a great uh, place to be in. It's hard. Yeah. Not a great place to be. It's very hard to explain. So that's I, that's where it breaks down and then finally i mean there's so many areas where things break down but one thing that i recently started realizing more and more actually i i just had a really uh we had a sales kickoff a couple of weeks ago with all the different sales teams and my new sdr team that i uh, brought on board and my marketing team and we had some really interesting conversations especially after hours in the bar but uh one thing that i started realizing is that uh uh, marketers think about individual people. They think about conversions, suspects, leads, contacts in the CRM because you reach out to these people. That's what you do. Sales folks think about accounts and not only sales folks. Actually, sometimes the uh, executives in the company, if they have a sales uh, background, they will think about it too. So they want to know how many, what organizations they're working with. Uh, you know, if they're hospitals, you know, you know, who are these hospitals? What kind of facilities? Uh, which departments? You know, they're looking at companies in the CRM. They're not looking necessarily at uh, the context in the CRM. And this may sound like pretty basic, but it's hard to close that gap because think about it this way. I mean, you're generating a few leads and these leads all happen to be part of the same company. How do you account for these? How do you account for the extra 
uh, incremental value of bringing in the second or the third leads that comes from the same company. I mean, you're mm -hmm. proud of it because you did some whatever great uh, campaign that's uh, managed to involve that second person and the third person. But on the other hand, most likely you're going to hear in a sales meeting, well, we are already talking to that account. So what does it matter to us? Right. Uh, and, and at least that happens in my company. And mm -hmm. a lot of research shows that modern enterprise, the modern enterprise sale <coughs> involves five to six stakeholders. And some of them are decision makers. Others are just pure influencers. Others are detractors. They just have to realize that you have to keep at an arm's length, keep them happy, but that's it. <coughs> so you as a head of marketing, um, you need to figure out what it means to you and your sales team um, and how do you bridge the gap between those leads and the accounts. And I would argue that that's the hardest realization and it's also very hard to track in a way. But having leads that represent different departments within within the same company is more valuable to the sales team than having leads that represent the same department. Yeah. <coughs> Can we go back a little bit? I'm starting to cough, so. Yeah, no, no problem, no problem. Sure. Um, so basically, what, what, what it means is that, and I, I've, I'm starting to become more and more um, aware of this and i think i wish I, I i was aware of that years ago is that getting leads that represent different roles and departments within an organization is much more valuable to a sales team than bringing in leads from the same department or similar very similar personalities uh, so if you bring in two clinicians in my example again healthcare technology right mm -hmm. if you bring in two clinicians that pretty much do the same thing yeah, I mean, maybe having more supporters and more people to say, yay, I like this product, we need something like that is important. But what's really more important is bringing in a clinician and an IT executive because someone in IT has to check all the boxes and say, you're selling software. They need to say this software works, this software is secure, it will integrate in our systems, and, and by the way, we like it, and we're going to work on it. And we're not going to put it on the back burner and say that we have other things to do to work on at the moment. And so that's just you know, another gap that I believe it's a little unorthodox because it, it just doesn't have, you know, I don't hear it being mentioned a lot of times when I, when I see people talk about sales and marketing, I just feel like it's being neglected. And until recently I was probably neglecting it as well. So we've talked about the SDR team potentially bridging the gap, the people gap and the leads and accounts being a number gap before we wrap up anything else to plug or anything you'd like to say. Um, no, I mean, I, I I think we covered a lot of content here, and <laughs> from 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 my from my end, I you know I could be very passionate speaking about about a lot of these things, and I realize that we have limited time here. So if anyone wants to maybe pick my brain on what exactly is a confront type of content, or you know what it means uh, to. Uh, internalize the pain for someone so that they don't stick with the status quo and you lead them to your solution. Some of these more esoteric things that I mentioned very quickly uh, earlier, you know, I'll be happy to to have an offline conversation about it. Uh, it's definitely I really care about. Um, it's something I care about. So uh, I just wanted to bring it up there that uh, we talked about a lot of things and some things are more straightforward and kind of overlap with I'm sure some of your previous episodes and maybe some of them were a little more different and I'm, I'm happy to discuss each of these in more detail. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, Emil Mladenov, thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Nick. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been Mind the Gap, a podcast about sales and marketing alignment put on by Enablex. My name is Nick Zeke Lopez. Thanks for listening.